Can I have any elementary age children come up here with uh, Mr. Charlie and Mr. Rick? Good morning. Sorry to say there won't be any Scotsmen in kilts yelling for you this morning, but that's okay. We are, uh, for those who don't know, we're in the midst of Romans 12, our summer sermon series. We're going through a series on gifts and the different gifts that God has given to every member of the church, uh, everyone who is a Christian. God has given them special gifts and capacities empowered by His Spirit to be used to serve the church and to serve the world around us. And so um, we've gone through some of those over the past few weeks. We've gone through prophecy, teaching, service, giving, uh, exhortation. And so if you've missed any of those, uh, you can check them out on the Facebook, uh, on our website, and you can listen through those. Um, because part of this time is really discerning and, and identifying with these, like, wow, which of these gifts uh, do I feel like God has given me and how can I be best using them. So if you missed some of those weeks, I encourage you to go check out and listen to some of those other gifts. Uh, but this morning, we're going to be talking about the gift of mercy. Um, but before we get into it, I'm just going to pray if you just join me. Father, we thank you that you are here with us right now, um, that you are just so good to us, God, and that you meet us exactly where we're at. And so we just ask this morning that your word would speak to us. Lord, your words would be words of, of life and truth, um, and that you would just really bear our, our hearts, God, this morning, um, and we would be open to whatever it is that you want to do. And so we just give this time up to you and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So there's this guy, and he's, he lives this is a, a few years back, so he's a, he's a herder. He's got sheep and camels and, and lots of things like that, and he's, he's a really good guy. He's used his money wisely. He's built up this kind of an empire for himself, right? He's got lots of wealth and resources. He's got a great family, a uh, good relationship with his wife. They've, uh, he's been serving and, and worshiping God his whole life. So he's a really, really great guy, right? Like outstanding in every way possible. And then one day, totally out of the blue, one of his servants comes up and says, hey, there was this huge fire and all of your sheep were consumed. And then just the same day, another servant then comes up to him and says, hey, these raiders came and they, they killed all the other servants except for me and the only one who got away. And all of your, all, they took all your camels. It's all gone. So all of his resources, just like that, stripped away. And then another one comes and says, hey, all of your kids, they were having a big banquet. They were getting together and eating and drinking wine, having a good time. And this wind came and, and knocked the entire house down and every one of them was crushed. And so his, his whole family, everything has been taken away. And then his own body, he comes down with horrible sores and, and this horrible disease. So he has nothing left. Even at this point, his wife is like, you should just curse God and die. What do you have left to live for? Your family's gone. Your resources are gone. Your body's a mess. What do you have left? Now, for those of you who don't know, this is the story of Job. And his story in the Bible has puzzled people for millennia because it's a story of this man who, in every way, has done the right thing. The Bible even tells us that in all of this, Job did not sin. And yet this horrible suffering comes 
upon him. And his friends come around him and they say, well, maybe, maybe you did something wrong, right? Maybe you sinned against God in this way and, and so he's punishing you. And God rebukes them and says, no, that's, that's not it. And Job is asking this question, why? Right? why? Why me? Why this? Why this suffering? How many of us at some point or another have asked those same questions? Why my family member? Why my job? Why this thing. And ultimately, Job isn't actually given an answer to that question. And we're left wondering at the mystery of God. Now, this morning we're talking about the gift of mercy, and you might be thinking, how, how exactly does this tie in? But really, the gift of mercy is a response to suffering, right? It's the gift that responds to pain and suffering and need and lack and I think one of the other ways we can think about this verse, so it, it says that he uh, who serves with mercy, uh, or he does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's the passage in Romans 12. And one of the other ways we could think about this word mercy, or one of the ways that we translate this word compassion. And I think this is helpful because we think about mercy, or another word for there is pity. And I don't think it gets, quite gets across what the Bible understands for this idea. So we think about passion, or compassion, Right, we have this word passion, which doesn't mean uh, intense desire or strong feelings like we use it today. Right? Like, oh, I'm really passionate about the Patriots. Like, that's not what the Bible is talking about. It talks about passion. Originally, passion just meant, it meant suffering, to suffer. And so we talk about the passion of Christ, right? the things that Christ endured leading up to the cross and on the cross. That's the passion of Christ. And so this word compassion just literally means to suffer together or to suffer with. So to show compassion to someone is to suffer with them. And I think this, this word best gets across, really, the, the Bible's big understanding of what it looks like to deal with and respond to suffering. Uh, as thinking about this, I've been reading through a, a, a book by Tim Keller, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, um, which I would encourage you is probably, it's the best thing I've seen on this whole topic. It's fantastic. Uh, so I'm drawing some ideas from that. And I'm going to take something that's incredibly complex and try as best to magnify the complexity of it. So, it, you know, if you're left with lots of questions, that's okay, because it's not a simple, a simple thing. But the first thing I want to talk about when we think about suffering is that suffering is normal. This might come as a surprise to us. Life is pain, Highness. Anyone who says otherwise is selling something. Right? I think we, we get surprised when bad things happen. But the reality is that, that suffering is, is kind of the norm of reality. And all different worldviews throughout history have had different ways of dealing with and responding to suffering and trying to find narratives to tie in. Why is this happening? How do we understand it? And so just a few of those different ones, you have a kind of Hindu perspective of, of karmic suffering, which is basically that everything that happens to you in life is something that you deserve. Right, everything, every everything that happens is a consequence of some previous thing in perhaps a previous life. Right? And so if something bad happens to you, you deserve it. Right? And so we get this really uh, almost like eye for an eye kind of understanding of, of suffering. And it's, in many ways, <laughs> not a lot of empathy there going on. But then we have a, a, the Buddhist understanding, which is that suffering is an illusion. Right? Suffering only exists because you have these desires and attachments to the world 
that, are, that aren't really, they're not real. You're actually just all one with everything. And so if you just recognize all of your attachments, your attachments to your children, your desires for uh, success or happiness, all these, they're just illusions. So if you let go of those attachments, then you won't feel suffering anymore. Just sort of minimizing the things that ultimately, for a lot of us, I think, define the human experience. Uh, and then you have a more traditional kind of a stoic understanding. This is the case in a lot of warrior cultures, tribal cultures. Um, that suffering is, is a test to be endured, something that we, we can get through and we'll be stronger afterwards, and so we just should just patiently, quietly endure it, right? Like, don't, don't cry, don't, uh, you know, pretend to be weak in any way. You just need to be strong and get through it. And then we have, uh, and all of these are, are present somewhat in our culture, but I think the most dominant one is, is the secularist worldview or mind, mindset. And this basically says that suffering is a meaningless inconvenience. So, if this world is all there is, right, there's no afterlife, there's nothing greater or transcendent, then the entire purpose of life in this world is to maximize your own happiness here and now. We just celebrated uh, 4th of July, and this is written into the very fabric of our society. This is out of the Declaration of Independence, right? You'll probably all learn this in school at some point. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So I have a right to liberty, freedom, to do whatever I want, right? This is how we've come to, to define this. So I have a right to have no restrictions in my pursuit of happiness. Like, I have a right to pursue whatever I want that's going to make me happy and with no restrictions. Now think about how suffering enters into that, right? Like say I want to be uh, the best runner out there, right? And then something goes wrong and, and my leg breaks and now I can't run. That suffering is keeping me back from being the person I want to be, from be accomplishing the thing I want to accomplish. Or maybe I want to be uh, you know, a great professor and you know, use my mind in brilliant ways. Well, what happens when the you know, mental, some kind of disease sets in and your brain starts deteriorating? Right? The, the, what, what are the things that are your greatest fears? Like, what, what if that thing happened to me, that all of my dreams would be lost? All the things I'm chasing after would no longer be able to be accomplished because this suffering would set me back. And so if all there is is this life and my own pursuit of freedom and happiness, then suffering is meaningless and it's just an inconvenience. And so it's something to be avoided at all costs. So whatever you can do, minimize your suffering. Make your life as comfortable and accessible as possible. This is, I think, the best, uh, the biggest worldview uh, message that we get from our culture in regards to suffering. Now, there's a concession here, and one of the good things that actually comes out of that, that I think a lot of previous cultures and other places miss, is this desire to alleviate suffering, right? So if suffering here and now is, is important, right? If we, if we just think, oh, this life doesn't matter at all, and it's only about the future life, then a lot of times what happens is, is people totally ignore suffering here, right? They, they just ignore the poverty. They ignore the injustice. They ignore the brokenness around them because this doesn't really matter. We just want to get on to the next thing. And so in this, I think that is one of the, the good things that has come out of this worldview is that we need to do something now, right? And, and we see that aspect in our, our culture, this desire to alleviate suffering, this desire to, to end injustice and poverty, but all of these have kind of a one-dimensional aspect to them. 
And I think the biblical view of suffering is a much broader and more nuanced and complex picture of what suffering is like. So we're going to look at a few different aspects of what the Bible says about suffering. So from the very beginning, we have suffering entering the picture, right? God has created this perfect world. Everything's good. And then we hit chapter three and everything goes wrong, right? And, and initially it is a result of human, human sin, right? That Adam and Eve rebel against God. They say, we're going we're to pursue our own freedom. We're going to do things our own way without you. But as a result of that, all of creation is subjected to corruption and decay. And so we see this general suffering set in where he tells Adam, all of your work is going to feel futile and frustrating. And to Eve, you're going to experience pain and your relationships are going to be difficult and strenuous and broken. And you just see this, this real brokenness that sets in over all of creation from day one. And so right away we get this picture that, yes, this isn't the way things are meant to be, but now it's the way things are. Suffering is normal. And then we have Proverbs. And this, in Proverbs, we get these truisms, right? Like, if you live a certain way, certain things will happen to you. And for those of you here with us last fall, we went through the book of Proverbs and looked at this. So if, you, if you're the wise man, right, or the, the wise woman, and you live wisely, right, you steward your resources, and then things go wrong, and now you have some financial buffer. Or you're really nice to people, and they want to be your friends, and so when things go wrong, now you've got people around you. And then that is contrasted with the fool, right? This is the person who, they're just mean to everybody, and so, yeah, when stuff goes wrong, nobody wants to help them because they pushed everyone away. Or maybe they've spent their money haphazardly, and so things go wrong, and all of a sudden, they have nothing left, right? They lose their job and there's no, there's no buffer because they haven't stewarded or saved anything. And so you see these things and it's, it's this like principle of you reap what you sow. And so there's one level to suffering where that's the case, right? Like if I live a certain way, there's going to be certain consequences. And God allows us to experience those consequences depending on how we decide to live our lives. But then... No matter how well we live our life, things don't always work out that way. That's why we have things, questions like, why do good or bad things happen to good people, right? Because we see people who, who seem to be doing everything right, and yet nothing right is happening to them. The teacher who uh, is writing the Proverbs is also writing in Ecclesiastes. And this is his experience of this reality. He says, the wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. And yet I perceived that the same events happened to all of them. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance, seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool." So I hated life because what is done under the sun was grievous to me for all is vanity and striving after the wind. And so he's recognizing here that even if I do everything right, there's no guarantee that my life is going to work out. And that the one guarantee is that at some point I am also going to die. No matter how good I live this life right now, at the end of this life I'm going to die. And I think if we just have the... the uh, secular worldview of just, just the here and now, I think, I think there's a hopelessness in that, that no matter how well you live here and now, if this is all there is, you're going to die and it's all going to be gone. So what does it matter? What's, what's the point? There's no long-term 
transcendent reality. And then he looks at just the way in which life is full of these ups and downs, these realities of happiness and frustration, joy and suffering. Um, this is in chapter 3. He says, For everything there is a season, a time for, matter, for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. And so we see that mixed in with the everyday life, there are these, these times of, of healing and, and goodness, and then these times of real brokenness and sorrow and death. And that this sort of suffering is woven in, the, the warp and woof of all of society has this, these ups and downs throughout life. And so we should expect, just as we will have a time of, of joy and new birth, so we will have a time of death and loss. And then again, we have the, the story of Job, who had done everything right and yet experienced this immense, incredible suffering where everything was taken away from him and never found out exactly why God allowed this to happen. Now, I think this is hard for a lot of us to understand because we're, we're, many of us are, are buffered from this in a way that the past was not. And other places in the world, even today, are not, being in 21st century America. In the Middle Ages, for example, uh, 20%, so one in five children, did not live through the first year of life. 20% of children. Out of that, then, only 50% survived past the age of 10. 50% of children who were born died before the age of 10 years old. So for, for people, even just that five, 600 years ago, death was so normal. It was so much a part of everyday thing, and they had no explanation for it, right? Now we have all sorts of doctors who can tell us, oh, this is exactly why this person is sick. This is exactly why this person is dying. A lot of times they had no idea why people were getting sick and dying. And something today that, you know, something as simple as a antibiotics can save people from small infections that would have killed people a few hundred years ago. Now we just give you some pills or a shot and you're good to go. Right, we're buffered from this immediacy of, of death. And we have a lot of wealth and resources, especially in the United States. And if, if we were to experience, uh, we wouldn't experience this, a, great, a lot of great famine sort of situations that were, were common, where people were totally uh, living by the seasons. And yet here we have enough resources to sort of protect ourselves from a lot of disasters. On our soil, there hasn't been a, a real war on U.S. soil since the 1860s. Now, many people, and maybe some in this room, have, have been to war, have experienced what that's like. Or you can turn on the news and watch what's going on in Syria right now and see the absolute devastation. But that kind of thing hasn't happened here in a very long time. And we can turn off our TV and forget about it. And so there's this 
time and, and buffer that we have from, from that real chaos that was part of everyday life for many people throughout history. Always wondering, when are we going to get raided again? When is another army going to walk through our town and, and slaughter everyone and take people prisoner? Right? Most of us don't live in fear of that day after day. And then, as a, a relatively young congregation, we don't experience the same sort of everyday kind of sickness and disease and death that comes with age. And we do, obviously, I don't, not at all trying to minimize what is experienced here, but I, this really came home to me. I was, I was preaching a few weeks ago up at Shutesbury Community Church, uh, up, up in the hills, and the median age of the congregation is a little bit higher than our congregation here. Uh, maybe most, you know, mostly gray heads in the room. And we had a time of open prayer, and the prayers in the room for people in the room and close loved ones and friends of the rest of the people in the room were, were praying for things that were immediate needs of, of death and organ failures and cancer and diseases and things that were so real to these people because they were all living in that right then. And I don't know about some of you, but as a 20-something, you know, grown-up, relatively comfortable, stable society, I kind of feel invincible most of the time. Like, nothing, nothing's going to happen to me, right? I can, I can get through life, and as long as nothing major goes wrong, I, I, I'm going to get to accomplish all my dreams and do all these things I want to do. And I have this mentality, because I feel this sort of buffer or protection from a lot of real suffering. And this sort of stuff is, is reminded to us when we see things like these terrorism attacks, right? They're sudden, and they're terrifying, because it takes that, like, oh, well, I'm not 80 yet, so I'm not going to experience that disease, to, oh, that was my friends, and that could be me, right? The, the shooting in Orlando or, or the attack at the concert, right, in, in the UK, like, those sorts of things could happen to any one of us any time. You know, we were, went up to Tanglewood for Fourth of July, and we're at the biggest concert of the year they have, surrounded by, I don't know, several, thousands and thousands of people there. And it was sort of in the back of my mind, like, this is definitely one of those places, right? There's, I don't know, 20,000 people here. This would be a great spot, celebrating the 4th of July. Like, this, that could happen right now, and there would be no warning, no expectation. And those kind of things remind us, like, wow, this, that suffering isn't quite as far off as we think it is. And so I, I think the question is not, why do these things happen? But why don't they actually happen more often? Right? Like, why, why do we get to experience as much comfort and happiness as we do? All right? We have it so much better off here often than so many other places in the world and so many other periods in history. And so I think we need to come to a place to see, before we can respond to suffering, we need to realize that suffering is normal. It's something we need to expect. But then also that, unlike the, the message from our culture, suffering actually has a purpose. That suffering has a really important purpose. Now, there are all sorts of reasons why God would allow suffering. I'm not going to even begin to, to touch that this morning. <laughs> just like Job, who, who doesn't really get an answer. God just shows up and says, I'm God. Who are you to even ask? I think many times that's really the best response we have, that who are we to even ask these questions? There's a, a Canadian philosopher, Charles Taylor, who's done a lot of work looking at the history of, of thought, and he says, no one saw suffering 
as evidence against the existence of God until the 1500s after the Enlightenment. Because at that point, people had enough confidence and faith in their own reason that they thought, well, if I can't come up with a reason for why this terrible thing is happening, God can't either. But up until that point, people, people didn't, they thought God is so big and so mysterious, I can't understand God. I have no idea why he's allowing this thing to happen. And there, there was this somewhat okay with that kind of level of mystery. But we've gotten to a place where I, I should be able to understand it. And if I can understand it, and I can't see any reason why God would allow that tsunami or that cancer or for ticks to even exist, <laughs> then there couldn't possibly be a good reason. But I think this is a hubris that we have in our culture. And so if God is big enough for us to blame him for suffering, he's big enough that he can have a reason that we can't understand. So what is the purpose or a purpose of suffering? Well, one of the big ones that, that Scripture gives to us is for our perfection and our holiness. So as our culture has said that the, the main thing in life is your own liberty, your own freedom, your own happiness, well, the Bible tells us that, that the main thing God wants to do in our life is not make us happy, but make us holy. Right? That he wants to shape us into his image. <laughs> and unfortunately, the primary way he likes to do that is through suffering. And I think the church historically has understood this. There's a few, I was reading a bunch of different saints' quotes and things like that, and just really struck by this understanding. Um, here's one of them. If you really want to love Jesus, first learn to suffer because suffering teaches you to love. As iron is fashioned by fire and on the anvil, so the firing and fire of suffering and under the weight of trials, our souls receive that form which our Lord desires them to have. This image of suffering as the furnace or as the anvil in which the iron is being pounded away, going from this raw lump of, of metal into something beautiful, something useful, something with a purpose. We see this throughout Scripture. Paul tells this to the Romans. He says, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. So as we suffer, as we undergo hardships and trials in this life, God uses that to force us to rely on him. Right? Some of you know the, the C.S. Lewis quote that God whispers to us in, in our comforts, but he shouts to us in our pain because it wakes us up from the day-to-day the -day things of, well, what's going to make me happy today? And it brings us back to reality that this world is not all there is. This world is not the only thing that exists. There's something greater, our God, transcendent God, and that there's going to be another world and another life that's going to be better and more worthwhile than this one. And so we're called to endure because that is going to shape our character, right? Like, if you've ever wanted to, to pursue the fruits of the Spirit, right, and you read through that list, you know, uh, patience, kindness, joy, goodness, all these things, you're like, man, I want, to, I want to have those things, right? So you start praying, like, God, give me patience. You know he's going to give you patience? <laughs> he's not just going to zap it into your life. Wow, I just feel so patient now. He's going to make you sit in a lot of traffic, right? He's going to make you wait in a lot of long lines and wait on a lot of things that you were hoping for and waiting for and waiting to hear back from that school or that job. Or He's going to teach you to wait 
And the longer you wait and the harder it is to wait, the more you're going to say, God, I, I, can't, I can't wait anymore. I need you to help me. And in that moment, he's going to teach you patience. If you say, God, I, I want to I be a person who's kind. I want to have kindness. You know how he's going to do that? He's going to give you a lot of people in your life that don't deserve kindness and that you do not want to be kind to. And you're going to have to swallow your pride and your dislike of them and choose to be kind to them over and over and over again. And he's going to develop kindness in you so until that becomes who you are. And so it's the way that God creates in us this holiness to make us look like him is through the difficult things in our lives, through the suffering. Peter says this, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also the revelation of his glory, uh, you may, uh, at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. So here Peter's saying, like, the more you get to suffer, the better. Because the more you get to suffer, the more his glory shows up in you. As a, uh, as a young person, probably sometime middle, middle school or high school, I had a youth leader, I remember telling me, and this always stuck with me, said that the greatest men in the faith that he's ever known men and women, the greatest people he's ever known who's had the deepest relationships with God, who've been the most Christ-like in their character, have experienced the worst suffering on this earth. And that, the question is, do you want to be happy or do you want to be holy? Because if we desire holiness, God is going to make us holy, but it's going to be a long, painful road. This is another saint. He says, When it is all over, you will not regret having suffered. Rather, you will regret having suffered so little and suffered that little so badly. So the question is not, are we going to suffer? Yes, you are going to suffer. But how well are you going to suffer? Is that suffering going to make you hard-hearted and bitter and angry at God? Or are you going to open up and say, God, I need you right now in the midst of my suffering and let him shape you and take you through that into something so much more glorious than you could even imagine now. And so the question that comes then is where is God in all this suffering? Right, if he allows it to happen and we don't understand why and we don't often get answers, where is he in the midst of all of this? And the, the, the answer that to me has always been the most helpful and the most meaningful is that we have a God who suffers. We don't have a God distant off in the clouds. He's up in this comfort, luxurious paradise, and he's just watching us like, you know, ants in a little ant farm, like, oh, look at that, all that horrible stuff going on. And maybe he's even tinkling around and, you know, pouring some water in there or shaking the box and, and just seeing what happens. But we have a God who condescended himself took on human flesh and entered into all of the brokenness of the world. All of the futility and frustration, right? He had to use work for, for years as a carpenter, experiencing the frustration of human work. He had broken relationships and rejection, betrayal from his own people, and ultimately, horrendous suffering. A few other 
uh, thoughts on this. What was the life of Christ but a perpetual humiliation? And then this one from St. Teresa. Blessed be he who came into the world for no other purpose than to suffer. So this is our God who came into the world for the very purpose of suffering for us. That not only does God work in spite of suffering, but God primarily works through suffering, right? The greatest work that God has did in history wasn't like, well, Jesus died, but even though Jesus died, he came back to life and everything's okay now. Like God fixed it. It was broken, but God fixed it. No, like the purpose for which Jesus came was to be broken, was to die, to use death in order to bring life. Why do we think that it's going to be any different in our lives or that God is going to work any differently through our circumstances? The author of Hebrews says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin, who endured every trial that we experience and yet clung evermore to the Father. And so not only has this God suffered like us and experienced human suffering, he then comes and suffers with us. The psalmist understood this. David, he says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So in the midst of his deepest despair, when life is most difficult and seemed most hopeless, right? The valley is deep and the walls are high and it's dark and there seems like there's no hope. David turns to the side and God is right there walking beside him, suffering with him because we have a compassionate God. And even in that process of sanctification, Peter puts it this way. He says, after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So that even that process of sanctification where God is using suffering to shape our character, that isn't happening from a distance. God is right there walking along with us saying, hey, let me help you be kind. Let me help you have hope. Let me help you be full of grace and walking with us in the midst of our suffering. And so as we think through these things, this biblical picture of suffering and the way that God is working and, and responding to our suffering, we can begin to see the, the complexity, right? Like this is not a simple thing for why suffering happens. There's no easy, straightforward answer for why the brokenness in our world happens the way it does and who it happens to, the good and the bad alike. But we can see the compassion of our God, the compassion that we as Christians, that we've received. We have a God who's come and suffered with us. And because of that, he empowers us by his spirit so that we can go in to other suffering and have compassion on them. And this is really what the gift of mercy looks like. To have compassion, to walk, step into someone else's suffering and say, let me walk with you in this. Let me serve you here in the midst of your suffering and your pain. Now, there are plenty of ways we can do this wrongly. We can not suffer well with others. The uh, Proverbs actually gives us a picture of this. It says, Whoever sings songs to a heavy heart is like one who takes off a garment on a cold day and like vinegar on soda. 
right? So it's already freezing outside, and, and this person feels alone, and they're isolated and uncomfortable, and they're bearing up in these circumstances, and someone comes along, and they're like, hey, let me make you feel better. And it's like pulling off that cloak, and now, it's, now they feel even more isolated and alone. Because, wow, you, you don't understand what I'm going through. You don't know what this is like. Clearly, you have no idea if you could say those things to me. We, we often do these sorts of things. We, we come to people who are suffering, and we say things like, well, God uses all things for good for those who love him. So don't worry, this is all going to turn out for good. Maybe. Maybe they're gonna, it's going to be like Joseph and, you know, 10, 15 years, however long, 20 years later, he's going to look back and say, wow, look at the way God used my you know, slavery and time in jail, and now he's using it to rescue all these people and, and reuniting with me and my family, and all this great stuff has come out of suffering. And, and many stories you hear from believers who have this hope, they'll give you that exact story. Like, yeah, we experienced the worst suffering, we got through it. We wouldn't change it for a moment. Because of the depth of relationship we have with God, of the community that came around us, of all of the wonderful, beautiful gifts, the way our character was shaped through that process, we wouldn't change it for a moment. But often this doesn't happen. Sometimes we go through suffering and there is no redemption at the end of it in this life. Someone just dies. It's over. That relationship is gone. Bad things happen, and we don't get to see how God is working through that. And we get to the end of our lives, and we might look back and say, wow, got all of this suffering. What was the point? You know, at the end of the story of Job, God returns. He gives him a, a whole new set of children, right? He, he and his wife have a bunch more children, and God restores all of his wealth. And so he has everything back, right? So maybe it seems kind of like a happy ending, but he still lost all of his family, went through all of this suffering. God never gives him a reason for that. He doesn't fix that situation. And so this is, we, when we respond to suffering with sort of trite, happy Christian responses, all we do is, is pour vinegar into the soda or, or pull off the cloak. If anything, you're just sort of rubbing salt in the wound, as, as we say. And then we have s- statements like, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. Right? That is just patently false. Like, there's, that's not in Scripture, right? He's talking about temptation, and God's going to give you a way out of temptation. He's going to help you, right? He's not talking about suffering. God is always giving us things that are more than we can handle. Every day I wake up and I feel like, God, I can't. This is more than I can handle today. He's always doing that. Any of you who are parents, you're probably feeling that way right now. You're like, I don't I can't, I can't do this on my own. But that's the point. That as we come and we, we say, God, this is way more than I can handle. I need you. I need you to come walk with me in suffering. I need a church that surrounds me and helps me who walks alongside me, who, who supplies for the, the needs and the things that I lack. I need people to come in because I can't do this on my own. This is what, these are things that don't, it does not look like. We see a great picture of what, the way that God responds to this, um, to the prophet Elijah. I know uh, some of you here when Tommy talked about this a few weeks ago with service. And that's really what compassion often looks like in this case, is service. So we have the prophet Elijah who's, you know, they've just called down fire from heaven. It's this glorious moment with God. But then he's still being hunted down and trying to be killed by the king and queen 
of Judah at the time. And so he runs off into the wilderness and he feels totally alone and he's despairing. And yeah, some of his thoughts and ideas are false, right? He's like, I'm totally alone. And God's like, no, actually there's a bunch of other people that are all want to help you and they're all being faithful too. But, but he feels totally alone and he's depressed and despairing. And God doesn't come alongside and say, yeah, but it's all going to work out for good in the end. Or I'm going to fix it and make it all better. Don't worry. Just be happy about it. Right? He just, he comes and meets him there and actually sends an angel to bake him some bread and give him a cup of water. Seems really simple, right? Like, oh, some bread and some water, right? How's that going to help him? But he just meets the very real physical needs that Elijah has in that moment and serves him. And after a few days of, of rest and nourishment, he's able to get up and keep going. He's able to move on. But in that moment, he didn't need the exhortation. Right? He didn't need the prophetic truth of, well, this is, this is what's really going on. He just needed someone to come alongside and say, here's some bread. It's warm. I just baked it. Here's some water. It'll quench your thirst out here in the desert. That's, that's what he needed in that moment of suffering. And people who have the gift of mercy, they know how to do that. They know how to come alongside and say, let me, let me serve you right here now in the midst of this pain. There's so many good ways in which God uses that kind of suffering to bring about really rich, deep relationships. And so many stories, um, especially, you know, in Keller's book, he's got really good story after story at the end of each chapter. And, and one of the themes throughout them is people who said, we were so amazed that in the midst of our suffering, the amount of people who came around us and loved us and served us in such a way we could never have imagined. And that the relationships that they gained throughout that time were so meaningful and so deep that the suffering was worth it because of those relationships. And so how can we show mercy to people by entering into their suffering to walk alongside them and let God use that to build really deep relationships? I think one of the things that we we struggle with this suffering. And we often, like I said at the beginning, we, we, we want to distance ourselves from it, right? We want to say, well, you know, that happens because that person lived poorly, right? Like, oh, they made poor decisions. That's why they're suffering. Or I would never go to that place, so that would never happen to me, right? We try to, try to distance ourselves from those things because we don't want to think about the reality that suffering is right in front of us every day as a possibility, and I think that's why we need to have this perspective of suffering if we're going to really be able to engage with it. To not be afraid of it as something that's, that's scary, overwhelming, bad, something to be avoided, like our culture says. No, it's something to be, to be stepped into in this way. When fellow brothers and sisters are suffering, to step into it with them and say, I'm going to suffer with you. I'm going to come alongside with you right now. And I'm not going to be afraid of that pain. I'm not going to be afraid of that hurt even though it is going to hurt. And I think this is why we're given this, this caveat here, to, to have mercy with cheerfulness. Now, the surface seems very contradictory in light of this. Like, how do you come alongside someone who's suffering with cheerfulness and not just be totally trite, right? Like, oh, just, just be happy, right? No. And that's not what he's saying here. But the person to come alongside if you're going to enter into their despair and you're going to enter into their suffering, you have to come with hope. You have to come with a gospel perspective that sees the real hope and the real life in the situation. 
that says, yeah, I know right now you're experiencing death, maybe physical death or emotional death or some other kind of suffering, but actually we have a God who has also experienced that. And we have a God who defeated death. And not only did he defeat it, but someday he's going to take all of the brokenness in this world and he's going to make it all new. Someday he's going to fix it all. Maybe not in our lifetimes, but someday when we, we die and we move on, he's going to have something so much greater and better. And then this suffering is temporary. Even if it lasts the rest of your life, it's a very short life we have here on this earth. And it's very temporary. And so to have that perspective of hope as the person who's showing the gift of mercy, to say I, the gospel shows us that there is hope even in the darkest suffering. And then to take those burdens and put them at the foot of the cross. So as somebody who has the gift of mercy, what, what you're going to find is that you're going to be taking on other people's burdens and their weariness and their pain, and it's going to start to wear you down. You're going to start to feel their despair, their frustration, their pain. And you, as someone who's showing mercy to others, needs to be going right to the foot of the cross every time. Because in order for you to be useful to that person, you can't be weighed down by their burdens also. Or what do you have to offer them? But Jesus is big enough to carry all of their burdens. And so you come alongside them and you say, let me, let me help carry that yoke, right? Because Jesus has my yoke. And I'm going to put this at his feet. And then I can walk with you together and, be, and suffer with you together. Now, one of the things I don't want to, to miss out on here is to not fall into the, the kind of stoic picture of, well, let's just endure suffering. Let's just embrace suffering and, and we'll just accept it as it is, right? Because that's also not the whole biblical picture. James tells us uh, in chapter 1, 27, he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so James says that, that actually part of, part of the Christian life is to go out and alleviate suffering, right? That God isn't just entering into suffering and, well, we'll just, we're just going to allow suffering and it's just going to be okay. We'll just leave it as it is. No, he promises someday I'm going to make this better. And he's using us right now to work towards that. And this is why I said at the beginning that this is one of the good things that I think our culture has started to grasp onto is that we do need to work to alleviate suffering. And that a lot of cultures and a lot of times in history have just embraced, we've just accepted, well, people are poor and people have disease and we're just going to leave it. But we see actually from the very beginning that that's not the Christian response to this. That the early Christians were known because they're the ones who stayed in the cities and took care of those with leprosy while everyone else fled and left them to die. So they didn't just enter into suffering and say, well, oh, you're, you know, you're all lepers and we'll just come over here and hang out with you while you die. But they were there taking care of them, comforting them, trying to help them nurse them back to health because they wanted to alleviate the poverty and suffering in any way that they could. There's a picture, God gives us a, a, a more extended picture of this in Isaiah. He says, this is what I, this is what I want from my people. Right? I love this image here. He says, it's not, is not this the fast that I choose? Right? The, the, the true religion, the true worship that I want, this is what it looks like. To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry 
and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer and you shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. And so this entering into suffering, right? This isn't, I don't want to paint this as just a picture of, of empathy, right? Like, I'm just going to come along and feel sad with you. Right? That's, that's not necessarily helpful. But to say, I'm going to enter into your suffering with you and I'm going to serve you. That picture of God serving Elijah, right? So I'm going to, I'm going to give you food and water. I'm going to meet your basic needs and necessities so I can help alleviate your suffering in the ways that I can. And so one of the ways in which is lived out as Christians is for us to come alongside people and actually meet their needs. The, the refugee, the orphan, the widow, again, things that we are kind of blanketed from here that we don't feel quite as strongly, but you don't have to walk around Amherst a whole lot to see a lot of homelessness. You don't have to go very far outside of this main street to see the poverty. That is here around us. And to be asking, what can we do to enter into the poverty and the hurt and the broken relationships? And what can we do to be going into those places and not just suffering with those people, but suffering by, by sacrificing what we have to alleviate their suffering, right? Like if I, if I want to suffer alongside someone, I need to give them some of my food, which means I'm going to have less, right? Someone loses their job. How are we going to help them, right? We can't just say, oh, I'm so sorry you lost your job. Like, no, we, get to, we need to help them pay the bills. We need to help put food on the table because they can't. Right? That's what it looks like for us as the church to be exercising the gift of mercy amongst ourselves and to be amongst the world around us. And for some of you, this will, this will just happen. This is what you do. And for some of us, this will take a lot of work. This is not my, my gifting. I'm much more the exhortation person. Like, come on, let's go. Let's, you know, stop being sad. And so I'm not always helpful in those situations. And I've, I've had to learn. People, people don't want you to just fix the problem all the time. Sometimes they just need to talk to somebody for an hour or 10. They just need someone to sit beside you and walk with you in that suffering. And that's why there's no easy automatic response to this, right? Like we need to enter in with empathy. We need to work to alleviate. We need to keep the hope and perspective that this life is not all there is and that there is a better world that is coming. And to hold all those things in tension as we seek to love one another and to show compassion to one another. This is why we have to always be reminded of this God who first entered into our suffering, who first came and gave himself up for us so that we could, so that he could know what it's like to experience the human brokenness and then to walk with us every day of our lives. And so we come to this table, and it seems slightly morbid, right, to, to come together to celebrate death week after week. But it reminds us of the reality that death is all around us. Suffering is all around us. But we have a God who doesn't just work in spite of death, but works primarily through death. The breaking of his own son, his body broken for us. 
and his blood that was poured out for us. That through that death, through that suffering, we have life, not just here in this temporary short life, but life for all of eternity. And so if you've received that compassion from God, I invite you this morning to come and to receive the bread, to take the cup, and to remind you that you have a God who is with you right now, wherever you're at this morning. Whatever you're walking through right now that hurts, he is there right there in the midst of the valley of darkness. And if you're here this morning and, and you're, you're wrestling through this and, and maybe your own suffering has, has caused you to, to feel bitter or angry towards God, to distance yourself from God, I encourage you right now to, to take a moment and just say, God, are, where are you? Where are you in my suffering? Where are you at right now? Because I want to know that you're here. If you're real, then I want to know that you're right here with me in my suffering and that you're a God who loves me enough to suffer and die for me. And so I invite those of you who are in that position just to remain in your seat right now and to, to ask that question, to pray, and to say, God, where are you at right now? Come and, come and meet me. So I'm going to invite the communion servers up in a moment. And I just want to close with this, this quote. Uh, this is a story from another uh, saint of, of Christian, Christian past. Uh, one day I saw two roads. One was broad, covered with sand and flowers, full of joy, music, and all sorts of pleasures. People walked along it, dancing and enjoying themselves. They reached the end of the road without realizing it. At the end of the road, there was a horrible precipice, that is, the abyss of hell. The souls fell blindly into it as they walked, so they fell. And their numbers were so great, it was impossible to count them. And I saw the other road, or rather, a path, for it was narrow and strewn with thorns and rocks. And the people who walked along it had tears in their eyes, and all kinds of suffering befell them. Some fell down upon the rocks, but stood up immediately and went on. And at the end of the road, there was a magnificent garden filled with all sorts of happiness. And all these souls entered there. At the very first instant, they forgot all their sufferings. Let us pray. Father, thank you that we have this hope that someday you are going to make all things new. God, that there's going to be a new heaven, a new earth, a new world where you wipe away every tear. Every heartache is going to be made well and mended. God, every broken limb, God, every physical thing, every emotional, spiritual, mental thing, God, you're going to make it all new. Lord, we can trust that this, this life is not all there is. God, it doesn't end here. Lord, give us hope for the future, God, that we know that you um, have a better world in mind, a better world that is promised. You've already gone ahead of us to prepare for us, God, and that we would have hope in the midst of wherever we're at this morning, in the midst of our suffering, God, that that we're going to experience for the rest of our lives. God, we would have this hope that you are with us and you are good. And so we trust you and ask that you would be glorified in the midst of our suffering. In Jesus' name, amen.